0: My name is Neil Middleton and every month we create informative content for you as we talk to important, influential and inspirational people from the world of bats as well as other areas of interest. To find out more about Batability, go to battability.co.uk. Now for the interview, let's do it. And hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome, welcome, welcome to today's edition of Talking Bat. And today I'm delighted to say that we have Dr. Stuart Newson from the British Trust of Ornithology with us. Hi, Stuart, how are you doing? Hi, Neil, many
1: thanks for inviting me. Um, yeah, I wasn't sure whether to wear my Christmas jumper today or
0: uh, antlers, but as you didn't, then. <laughs> yeah that, 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 that could have been a plan actually that could have been a plan yeah because could have been sitting here with reindeer head gear and stuff like that yeah so uh, yeah. yeah have you ever recorded reindeer have you, uh, got that in your, have you got that in one of your classifiers no no, <laughs> no it'd be nice
1: it'd be nice i've, I've been up to uh i've spent some time in spalbard
0: um with reindeer but yeah no no sadly not I reckon if you're a mammologist and you need sound to identify a reindeer uh, you're probably you're probably struggling.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. Anyway, well, thank you for agreeing to do this and uh, ladies and gentlemen I'm quite sure if you follow uh, the social media, especially the Facebook, but uh, what's it called, the bat echolocation Facebook page, I can't know what it's called now Stuart, yeah. is it? <laughs> um, is it sound, bat sound analysis workshop? Yeah. Think. Yeah. yeah, I mean Stuart is a regular contributor uh, and commentator on uh, some of the stuff that goes on there. And you know, Stuart, I mean, I, f- I follow that social media page along with loads of others, and I rarely comment on anything because I know how much. Well, I don't know. It's maybe just me, but I know if I was going to comment on something that someone put up, I would have to choose my words so carefully and I would have to spend so much time just to write a paragraph that I just don't allow myself to do it. You must, you must spend a lot of time putting stuff up there and helping people out. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I, um, yeah, I find it a a good distraction.
1: Um, I'm very good at finding things to do, um, when I should be doing other things, I think. Um, but no, I, I find it really interesting just uh, seeing the range of different calls that come up, I find it—I um, find it for myself a really nice challenge to really kind of think about some of these difficult calls. Um, particularly as in a lot of cases um, they're kind of one-off, they're outliers, they're unusual calls for a species. And um, yeah, I kind
0: of like—I like that challenge. I see more things that go up there, and and yeah, it just—it just amazes me. I mean, there's yourself and. Uh, Chris Corbin, I mean, he he puts yeah, an awful lot of stuff up he's there. Brilliant. Yeah. I don't know how he finds the time, oh, really. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. we actually interviewed uh, Chris on Talking Bat a few months ago, and he's uh, an no, amazing guy as well, but, yeah. but as I say, I I sit and I read the stuff that other people put up, and I just think to myself, uh, I mean, sometimes, yeah. I, I'm kind of supposed to know what I'm talking about with some of this stuff, I think some people would think, but... But sometimes I just read what someone's put up there and I go, I'm gonna to have to get a dictionary out because half of those words I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no it's a I think it's a good good
1: page to just kind of push you and uh, yeah, it's a good way, way of learning and trying to find also trying to put into words uh, why you think something is something. Yeah, I find that really, I find that really difficult and trying to do it there. Uh, what, what I tend to do is try and have some images because I find people, if you can visualize it and myself, if I can visualize what the differences are, rather than describing them where, you know, someone's description of one thing can be very different to yeah. someone else. Yeah. Uh, and then you've got, um, so there's a lot of people in other other countries, you've got the kind of translation as well um yeah no it's, it's good fun yeah
0: well anyway, i just i just want to say on behalf of many people who i know that follow that particular site uh, thank you because uh, you certainly helped to clear up quite a few quite a few queries <laughs> okay. that's an understatement i'm quite sure but just yeah. want to talk you. a little bit more about what your proper job is okay because you don't get paid to post stuff on facebook do you Obviously, oh, i don't think you do certainly no no so you're a senior research ecologist and there's another part of your job description as well as it fellow researcher or something like that uh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: So, yeah. I guess, I guess, um, so I've worked at the BTO, so British Trust for Ornithology, for almost 20 years now. Wow. So, quite a long time. Um, and I'd say the core of my work has been birds. So, um, but it's been really diverse. It's been working on everything from climate change to uh, working on bird flu to. Um, impacts of predators um, migration of things so re- really diverse um, so that quite quite often I don't I don't kind of feel I'm a kind of expert in anything on birds but I, I guess the main thing I work with is big data sets so um, analyzing big data sets trying to find out using those often collected by volunteers so the BTO runs a number of big volunteer surveys um, and that's, that's what really excites me, come look, looking at some of these big data sets and starting to look at the, the patterns, starting to work out why are things declining, why are things doing this or or whatever. So
0: um, I think for me, it's a really good place to work. And what did you do before BTO? You were obviously at university, yeah. but did you have any other papers? Paid- Keep jobs I before that yeah you brought yeah. out one of my favorite birds there um yeah. <laughs> well, well we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute i'm just more yeah. well interested did, did you work anywhere before the BTO before BTO? Yeah.
1: uh yeah so after my degree i i did a did a phd phd on cormorants so i spent uh a bit over three years pretty much just climbing trees and going out to islands to to uh work on Kind of coastal and inland breeding cormorants. Um, so I kind of really got into seabirds in general at that point in my, my career. Um, so uh, a lot of expeditions to islands to, to bring other seabirds. So working, uh, I think I've had about six or six trips now to Saul Skerry off um, northern Scotland yeah. Uh, yeah. to catch things like puffin and leeches, petrol. Um, and then islands like Dune off St Kilda to to survey leeches petrol. So I think a big big part of my career, a uh, big part of my, um, I guess my my work on wildlife has been on birds and a lot of it on seabirds. Wow. Uh, so I got quite good at climbing trees
0: at one point, but uh, I think my children are much better at me now. All right, so you let your children climb trees, do you? Is that what you're going to, <laughs> you're going to let? They're much better than me, yeah. <laughs> so so how, how many children do you have, and what sort of age are
1: they? Yeah. Uh, I've got two children, seven and nine. Okay. So, and they, they're really, really into wildlife, and actually a lot of the work, a lot of the stuff I've done, so I'll talk a bit later about bush crickets, they, they can hear bush crickets, which I can't, Right. So when I was uh, starting to get into sound identification of bush cricket, said so come with me, and they, they, would, they would kind of hear everything. Uh, it's a bit
0: frustrating, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, I remember my, my son, uh, Aaron, who's he's a professional bat person now, but uh,
1: yeah.
0: when he was uh, probably about the same sort of age as your kids, I took him on a bat walk I did once with RSPB and I I was looking after him that night, so he came along with me, and we're all standing there with bat detectors, couldn't hear a thing, and Aaron just kept shouting, there's a bat, there's a bat over there, and I just kept telling him, shut up, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) And he was actually picking up, he was picking up this this bat, must have been social calling or something, but he was picking up this bat, the bat detector wasn't hearing, you know, so yeah, I can relate to what you're saying there, with the bush crickets, yeah. And where, do you, where are you from? I mean, you live you live in Norfolk now, I would imagine. Yeah. Is that where you're from originally?
1: Um, so originally from Essex, actually. Uh, so I was brought up in uh, Clacton on Sea. Okay. Um, and then, so yeah, kind of brought up there. And from a really early age, my first interest was was birds. So I, I can definitely remember far back as being kind of five or six and really into birds Um, but my parents would uh, drop me off at various places I spent um, almost every weekend just somewhere on the Essex marshes looking for looking for birds Um, and my my poor older brother had to look after me so we would both be dropped off somewhere like Colm Point which is pretty remote and would spend the day just wandering around with our are kind of um, not very good binoculars, kind of looking looking for birds. Um, but we had we had quite a few good adventures then, I think, uh, which is good. And I think any time I go anywhere where I hear Brent geese now, big flocks of Brent geese, it really brings back those kind of early memories of being out birding in some of these really remote places.
0: If you're enjoying listening to our podcasts, perhaps you would also be interested in joining Battability Club. To find out more about Club, which includes hundreds of hours of accessible training resources available to you in your own time and at your case, go to battability.co.uk. Thank you. especially parents, so they weren't interested in wildlife at all, were they? Or uh,
1: they? I'd say they were sympathetic, so they got supported <laughs> okay, by, yeah. my kind of mad interest. Yeah, uh, they weren't really into it themselves. So quite interested to see, uh, like putting bird feeders in the garden and seeing what birds birds came in. But they they weren't really into it. And I think I think it was really the opportunities. I think if I kind of knew the type of work that went on now on bats and small mammals and like other mammals, I could have very easily gone uh, at an early age into some of these other groups at that point. But uh, I think with birds being so obvious, if you put bird feeders out you see birds, it was really accessible if you didn't really have the contact.
0: Yeah. And of course, back back then we didn't have the internet. We didn't have mobile phones. We didn't have social media. (laughs) It it very much was... uh, you know you, you, you just had to buy some bird books and go and just learn it yourself yeah. or be a member of the Young Ornithologist Club which used to be the yeah. junior version of that SPB. Uh, that so sort I, of stuff. Did, yeah. yeah.
1: So I know um, I went on quite a few YSE holidays which was really good because you meet people with similar interests yeah. uh, and I've still got all the old bird books uh, and you look at them now and you've got like the warblers and they all look identical from these awful drawings yeah. compared with the books you've got now, the Collins Guides and um things have really, really moved on.
0: So you then you must have had a bit of a nosebleed moving all of the all the way from Essex to, to Norfolk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's that about? What 20 miles 50 miles yeah it's (laughs) not
1: very far i didn't i didn't mean to end up in norfolk so i after going to school i well when i was at school i thought i could really get into art so i was really into wildlife art and uh, i got a a scholarship art scholarship which paid for most of my fees to go to quite a good quite a good school in cambridgeshire then um after that, I was trying to decide, okay, what do I do? Do I do biology or art? And it was a really difficult decision at one point. And yeah. I, kind of Biology one, I went to Bristol to do zoology, a zoology degree. And then I didn't leave Bristol. I was in Bristol for maybe eight years. Uh, I right. did a bit okay. of work for the Wildlife Trust. So I kind of know the West Country, that kind of area quite well. Um, Essex. I know the Essex marshes very well. I've been spending <laughs> a good part of my life kind of wandering around looking for birds, uh, and now Norfolk. Yeah,
0: yeah, okay. And um, do you actually stay in Thetford, or are you outside Thetford? I mean, I, I say that I, I know Thetford extremely well because uh, my my children's uh, grandparents were uh, from are from Thetford, and I used to spend. Many many weeks in Thetford over the course of a year when my, my kids were toddlers. Um, okay. So yeah. So how far away from Thetford are you? Um, um about thirty five minute drop minutes
1: drive. So I'm just south okay. of Norwich, but I I live out. I've got one neighbor one side, and then it's about a ten minute walk. It's really uh, just out in the country. Okay. Uh, which is nice. I can escape from people, and okay. which is good bit of quiet and the kids can run around we've got a uh, a common next door so the kids can go out and play on that wow
0: sounds good sounds lovely sounds absolutely lovely right so you did your PhD on uh, cormorants yeah but I wanted to kind of move on to well the first time I came across you and I don't know if this would be fair to see the first time the bat world came across you, but it was certainly the first time I became conscious of you was when you started doing this Norfolk bat survey thing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Tell us, a little, tell us a little bit about how that happened and okay. how it developed. Cause I'm, yeah, go for it. Yeah. So i probably need to go back a couple of years before this, maybe a few years
1: before. And, um, I was asked to write a chapter on the mammals of my local common, and I thought, how how difficult can this be? Um, we've got deer. I can identify deer, uh, squirrels and things. Um, I'd done a lot of uh, small mammal trapping before, uh, so I was very experienced with small mammal trapping. So I started doing intensive small mammal trapping, and I thought, oh dear, there's there's this group bats. How am I going to deal with these? Yeah, and um, I thought, right, I'll get in touch with the local bat group. And there was the chair of the group, um, Guy Sam Phillips. He said, why don't you borrow some of our, our anabats? He worked for an environmental consultant. So every Friday I would drive into Norwich, I'd pick up all their kind of stash of bat detectors. So a load of anabats, I'd kind of bring them back. They weren't using them over the weekend. And the condition was if I brought them back early morning before they needed them, then that, that, was, that was all good. So I did that for a long time, borrowed their equipment and I just deploy these detectors. Um, and that really got me into the whole sound sound analysis side of things. And I got to the point where uh, I, I really wanted to try and push identification a bit further. And um, I was feeling I was missing quite a bit by not using full spectrum detectors. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I thought how how am I ever gonna afford a thousand pound bit of kit? Um so I applied for a British ecological grant, and which I got, which just allowed me to buy a uh it was an SM2 when they first sm oh, Yeah. An SM2 yes, back. yeah.
0: So
1: I got yeah. an SM2 back, and that really got me kind of hooked on the whole sound identification. And then it's really a, a chance. I was listening to a conversation between a couple of environmental consultants um, who, who are part of this bat group, and they were they were kind of complaining how how difficult it was to survey areas of Norwich, so a built up area, and how they couldn't leave bat detectors out and all those kind of issues. And that got me thinking: how how could we survey a city like Norwich? So just over a hundred square kilometers. How could we survey it? And I started to come up with mad ideas like um, we could get an old banger car and we could uh, fit it up with a bat detector and drive it around and leave it in places. So that was kind of Batmobile type thing. (laughs) Uh, Which wasn't really, that wasn't really very practical. But so what I ended up doing was I, I realised that the only way we we're going to get a lot of the city surveyed, a lot of it was private. If we could put detectors in private places like gardens on people's land, um, that would be a really good way of surveying quite a large area like that. Um, I got in touch with the university and we, we set up a MSE project. I knew I, I couldn't do it. I wanted someone to do it, but I knew I'd never have time. Set up a project. We got a couple of really keen students and we got a bit of funding for a few detectors, few full spectrum detectors, and then they'd move them around. So we had a publicity campaign where we got people to get in touch who were happy to have a bat detector on their land for a few nights. And they would kind of do that over a season and quite quickly you can survey like a big area like Norwich, at least a a location within each one kilometer square. So I think after doing that for a couple of years, I thought, okay, how, how can we scale this up now to a kind of larger area like Norfolk? So the challenge there is Norfolk's quite a big county. It's about yeah. five and a half thousand square kilometers, so yeah. fairly big. And uh, again, I thought the equipment that we need, it's quite expensive. How can we how can we pay for it? So I put in for a People's Trust for Endangered Species mammal grants, which we got. I got a little bit of funding from Defra, a local recording fund, to buy equipment, uh, which I think allowed me to buy about twenty bat detectors. There wasn't any funding to fund my time, uh, so but I still wanted to do it. This is not a way to kind of go about designing a project. <laughs> what you should do is get get the funding that you need for a project and then do it. Not get a bit of funding and no time to cover your own time. Yeah. yeah. So. What I tend to do is I would uh, get the kids to bed. So they're really young at the time, get them to bed and then start working on a lot of this stuff.
0: Because yeah, B- BTO wasn't paying you to do this at this point. Is that right? No, oh. no. So I did have a little bit. Um, I guess I think I had about
1: two days of staff time uh, to set it up. So really pretty much nothing. But by doing that, the BTO had its name on it. So so the challenge was we had 20 bat detectors. I wanted to try and make them as accessible to as many people in the county as possible. So what I thought is I need I need to be a bit strategic about this and I need to space them out across the county so that anyone would be within like 15, maybe 15, 10 to 15 minutes drive of a bat detector they could borrow. So I started to approach people like, um, Titchwell, RSPB, places that are open to the public that could host a bat detector, local libraries, and I kind of set up 20, I call them hosting centres or bat monitoring centres where anyone could borrow a bat detector. The other important thing was I wanted to get back to people really quickly with at least some first results. So I kind of wrote a... A script that after I process the data, it was a press of a button to produce uh, like a few uh, summary bits of information on what was recorded. So all the time I was trying to save save on effort. So I started this, and I started to get loads of data back. I had I think I had five or six laptops around me in the evening trying to deal with data. So it'd be starting to process it, like stick them in. It was it was completely completely mad yeah uh, the volume yeah. of data we're getting not having any time to do it in work time so trying to do this in an evening uh, it was completely mad yeah um, but that kind of led me on to other things to think about how can we be more efficient in processing data how can we get feedback to people a lot easier than me having to do stuff i guess i guess it was a kind of fun challenge that
0: I think I'm going to ask you a question. I think you know the answer to this, because I I I know that you used to know the answer to this, but have you any idea how many recordings of bats the Norfolk Bat Project uh, pulled together? I mean, it must have been (coughs) hundreds of thousands, yeah? Um,
1: Yeah, I think a couple of years ago, it was over two million bat recordings that we assigned to species so it was a bigger data set that we didn't um
0: it's amazing that's amazing so and then of course that wasn't enough you then decided that you wanted to come up our way as well and hit this the south of scotland yeah <laughs> Just even even more data
1: <laughs> well i think what really interested me about that was um well one was a challenge how do you run a volunteer project in places like Dumfries and Galloway and Scottish Borders where like a volunteer project where there's hardly any volunteers. Yeah, uh, yeah. there's really low density of people. How yeah. do you, so that, that whole challenge really interested me. And then uh, the whole challenge of just dealing with a different area and dealing with a bigger area. So Norfolk was five and a half thousand square kilometers. The area we focused on, Southern Scotland, was about 25,000 square kilometres. So that those two things, I thought, I've got, to, I've got to put in a tender, I've got to go for this. But we used a slightly different approach there where we used volunteers and we tried to encourage them to take a location that was uh, not in their garden. So try to get more representative coverage. But uh, we had the luxury of a couple of paid field workers who... Uh, I could send to different places. So during the survey season, I I had a I like I like kind of nerdy things. I just had a little script where uh, I can look at the habitat coverage. How representative is the survey coverage that we're getting during the season? And if it, if we're under surveying things like moorland, I'd then send these poor field, paid field workers to moorland or upper mountain or what i was trying to do is kind of get representative coverage rather than survey the best areas yeah yeah because yeah. you don't by doing that they may be good areas but then you don't know how how good they are relative to the rest of the rest of southern scotland
0: yeah and of course a lot of what you are doing here from the scottish perspective was linked to renewable energy is yes, that's correct isn't it yeah yeah um yeah to wind farms and and of course, wind farms aren't necessarily in fact quite often. They're not in places that you would normally think of as being particularly batty. But, uh, but as I know, <laughs> having run an ecological consultancy up here, um, yeah, you can be quite high up into the hills, and yeah, you'll record quite a lot of bats at certain times of the year. Um, yeah, yeah. I think it's very tempting just to
1: go to good areas. And then um, if, if you do that, it's very difficult, unless you get representative coverage, it's very difficult to then predict what's happening in unsurveyed areas if you haven't got representative coverage from the start. Yeah. So I really wanted to get that kind of broad coverage of uh, higher elevation sites and areas which weren't so good for bats.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, but no, it was, it was good fun. I learnt, I learnt a lot more doing that, I think
0: so is this by the time you got on to that this now becomes a little bit more like your day job is that right yeah or are you still doing this pretty much voluntarily or
1: thankfully uh no that that's the first project actually paid paid my time to to kind of organize it and also some time to deal with the data so I, I really like spending time looking at recordings. I'd be really happy, just be paid to do that the whole time. Uh, sadly, I, I can't, but uh, uh, so that was really good. So for the Scottish project, it gave me an opportunity to really spend time looking at noctural Lyslers and getting recordings from elsewhere. So I spent some time getting recordings from Ireland to really try and understand myself, the range of variation of calls of uh, Lyslers in Scotland. Uh, in Ireland, and then kind of learning from that, applying it to uh, the data we're getting from, from Scotland.
0: So, okay, so you start off looking outside your window, somewhere local, someone asks you to, could you write a, le- a little chapter about the mammals <laughs> locally? Yeah. yeah. And then you decide, oh, I better get into bats, but this small patch of ground isn't big enough. We've got to do Norwich. And then you think, no, no, we can't just do Norwich, we've got to do Norfolk. And then you end up doing Norfolk and then you end up doing something like 25% of the landmass of Scotland. Okay, something like that. Probably a little bit more than that. And then you think, oh, put the blazes, let's do bush crickets as well. I mean, are you mad? (laughs) Could you not have enough to do?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think always my first interest is, was bats. But yeah. then um, I think every bat every bat worker, uh, particularly in southern England, uh, will see a lot of bush cricket recordings. And to me, straight away, that's an opportunity. Bush crickets are uh, not very well monitored. There's not not great data. Bat workers, I know, hate hate bush crickets. So a lot of bat workers hate bush crickets. Yeah. But for me, I felt if I could i could identify them then there's a there's a real potential to try and um well get really good get really good distributional data understand bush crickets a lot more um yeah i was really lucky that um i i got a bit of funding from have you heard of mark constantine at all he's uh
0: yes yeah i've i, I don't i don't i have heard the name yes Sah. Uh-huh. yeah yeah,
1: yeah. So he's he's the CEO of Lush, and he's also got an interest in sound ID, uh, but he's also a really big supporter of the BTO and our work. And um, several years ago, he set up something where um, we could um, present an idea. So it's a bit like Dragon's Den internally at the BTO. You had five minutes, you present an idea to um, a colleague of his and he may or may not fund it so this wasn't for kind of big amounts of money it was for fairly small amounts of money just to get some st- something started and um, for me a lot of the stuff which really interests me is I think viewed externally as a little bit risky it um, is quite hard to get funding for some of the things which funders see as being a bit risky that might not work um, like bush crickets or small mammals or stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I presented this idea and he, I got a bit of funding which allowed me to go and spend time working with Yves uh, Barr um, and colleagues in, um, in France. Who, uh, so they run the French National Bat Monitoring Programme, uh, but they've also, between, between them, uh, they've got a huge amount of expertise in, in sound identification of bats. So I think up to this point, everything that I was learning about bats was uh, from what I could read. Uh, Working at the BTO, there isn't really other people around me working on bats. A lot of of expertise on birds, but not really on bats. This gave me an opportunity to go there uh, specifically to work on myotis, sound identification of myotis, and uh, to look at some of our recordings of things like uh, whiskered brants or what we suspected were whiskered brands from Norfolk and um, spend time looking at these recordings with the guys out there and um, this was really valuable because it showed showed me um, where well one thing where uh, they had a lot of knowledge but also how far to push identification at what point should you just say there's not enough information walk away we're not gonna so my Otis, or it's a bat. And so that, that was really valuable, being able to do that. But one of the other things was talking to Eve Barr, we were both thinking about bush crickets independently. Um, so I was kind of thinking, I oh, was all this data, it'd be great to do something like identify bush crickets. They were also thinking about it. they uh, thought, again, at that point, I didn't have time to work on this. We thought, well, why don't we start? I'll I'll try and go back and start building a reference library for bush crickets for UK, and perhaps we'll build some software. We'll identify them alongside bats. So that that was really how it how it came about.
0: Because all of cause all of this, and although it's pretty obvious to you and me, okay. just for the sake of anybody listening to this, all of this bush cricket data was being picked up as what you would describe as bycatch as a result of all of these bat detectors that were out all over Norfolk, for example, recording bats. So these bat detectors are out there, they're recording bats, and at the same time they're recording bush crickets. Um, so it's, it's like two for the price of one, isn't it? You know, you're getting you know, two completely separate uh, data sets for two completely different types of creature but of the same field effort, I suppose. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I think one thing that really helped me, um, after I got really excited about the possibility of what you could do with bush crickets, um, I I came back and there's an opportunity, an internal opportunity to apply for a fellowship, which could fund um, several months of my time to work on stuff that interested me potentially. So it was a competitive thing between our, Kind of 100 odd staff at the VTO um, so a lot of people were really keen to get on this to work on their favourite project and um, there were external people kind of looking at the proposals that went in so I got funding for that which uh, allowed me for several months to go out um, on nice days outside brilliant field work because yeah. uh, bush cricket's more noisy kind of nice sunny days go wandering around, finding the bush cricket, getting, getting recordings, trying to get a whole range of recordings from different individuals, close individuals, the sort, sort of recordings you'd normally get in the field. So I, I never thought I'd be interested in bush crickets until I didn't know anything about them before. Uh, but now I find it really rewarding. I can go for a walk. I can have a microphone plugged in. And I can just think, oh, there's Roselle's there. There's a long-wing yeah. conehead, short-wing conehead. Yeah, and
0: yeah. I, I, you know that's—I mean—a completely different way because I wasn't as intensely involved. No, nope, close to, to how involved you were with bush cricket stuff, but uh, I think I talk about that and this that about the book. And, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to sort of say right now, when I would committed to do that book uh, at the very, very beginning, I knew I was going to have to do a chapter in bush crickets and. And I didn't really know what I was talking about uh, before, before I started writing the book and I kept putting the bush cricket chapter off to the side thinking yeah I'll need to do the bush crickets, I need to do the bush crickets and, and I was accumulating lots of recordings of bush crickets and I wasn't overly confident that I was identifying them all correctly and there are some very heavy books, very good books, some, but some very heavy reading books from way back uh, which you know we're just way above my my head to be honest uh in trying to interpret what some of the authors were talking about, but but darn lucky for me, Stuart, that you were around. <laughs> because, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> because because totally coincidentally, you were you were doing this and uh yeah, so thank you so much for you know, particularly the stuff you did in bush crickets. Um that probably saved me a lot a lot of time on that chapter because okay. <laughs> because, be because I would have probably still been writing that chapter today, or would have probably just ditched the chapter and think that's that a good idea. But okay. but yeah, but the point I was saying was when I was actually collecting uh, some bush cricket's recordings, I was over in uh, France, I think it was one evening. I was out with Aileen, my wife, and I was recording this spectacular, I assume it was a bush cricket a species, it wasn't one that we had in the UK. And it was just sounding very, very different to uh, what I was accustomed to. It was down in the south of France. And this, this darn, lesser horseshoe bat came in and started flying around us, yeah? yeah. And Alien had a bat detector, uh, as I did, but I was using mine to record the bush cricket. And Aileen kept saying, "It's a horseshoe bat, there's a horseshoe bat. And I'm going, yeah, it's bloody annoying, you know? Right. <laughs> and so I'm trying to shoo away the horseshoe bat because I'm trying right. to get a decent record. And that was a point when I suddenly realized, because like you, until I started recording these things, yeah. I wasn't, in the, I, I, I was intrigued. But, yeah. but up until that point, they were a nuisance. And then I went through this six-month period where, well, actually, that summer, the bats actually became a nuisance to me recording the bush crickets as opposed to the other way around. Okay. Can you kind of associate yeah. with that a little bit? Yeah. It's... Yeah. I kind of feel it's really, thinking about bush crickets,
1: and uh, I know we'll come on to it, small mammals, more recently, Yeah, It's really yeah. improved my, my bat identification because... Uh, particularly when it comes to thinking about social calls and yeah. um, and kind of thinking first, is, is it that? As, but I, I do like to try and identify everything if I can. Yeah. Uh, I do like that kind of challenge. And um, for quite a long time, I, I've still got kind of folders of things, unknown, unknown insect, and there's still things in that, or unknown beetle, or I don't know, there's a load of other stuff which I haven't yeah. kind of worked on um but it's really satisfying when you you finally think yeah i actually know i know what that is and if i see it again i'll be able to identify it
0: yeah and i think that's the thing once you know what something is it then becomes interesting yeah. whereas yeah, definitely i mean if you'd asked me about bush crickets what sure. when did i write that you know if you'd ask me about bush crickets three four years ago yeah. Like any or like most of the bat workers in the southern half of the United Kingdom, yeah, I would just think, no, they're just noisy, irritating you know, yeah. creatures. <laughs> and yeah. And no, uh, it's not like it's not like that at all. Yeah. But anyway, um, there's a really good resource, ladies and gentlemen, on the BTO website. So this is the Norfolk Bat Survey page, batsurvey.org. And if you click on bush cricket identification. And you scroll down, there are some very accessible, um, interesting recordings of the, I think you've pretty much got all of the British species here covered. There's maybe one or two of the rarer ones aren't there for memory. But, yeah. But they're all there. And we just randomly pick on, we're going to pick on something new, pick on great green bush cricket because that's nice and loud. Yeah, cool. I think that's the results then is it? Yeah, <laughs> we could do this all afternoon. But anyway, uh... one thing I was finding was uh,
1: a lot of the people who worked on orthoptera mainly present oscillograms rather than spectra. Yeah. So having having your book, so I've got I think one of the heavy going books that you mentioned, I've got uh, by yeah. Rag, which is I find it really good, but it's it's not accessible. And if you're looking at rec- like bat recordings it's really difficult to get into. Um, I remember one point looking at, um, so I had long-winged and short-winged conehead. I was kind of playing them and thinking, I'm never gonna be able to identify these two. And then um, I was just being really slow. I suddenly realized, ah, they've got a different number of syllables in the course. I didn't realize that for quite a long time and I was playing them and thinking, they just sound the same to me. But all I had to do was be able to count <laughs> yeah. I think I was looking at being kind of making it too, too kind of more difficult a job than it really was yeah yeah
0: and I remember I can't remember specifically but I remember when I wrote about them in the book there uh, to my ears, listening to them there was there was just a, a slightly different pattern going on and I yeah. wouldn't want to be brave enough to say that that was a 100% diagnostic way of always separating them but hmm. but assuming that what I was listening to were the right things that that did seem to be a, a different uh, audible pattern yeah. Um, yeah yeah
1: I think so, I think compared with bats they're
0: they're much simpler because they don't
1: unlike bats they don't change their call cool shape they don't do anything uh, to complicate things like that all they do is just get faster and slower, depending on how, how cold it is. Yeah. So, um, I don't know, it's, it's nowhere near a bigger challenge, I think. And there's not that many bush cricket species in the UK. No. no so. Right.
0: Yeah. But no, I was, I was fascinated with that stuff. But anyway, once again, thank you so much for a, uh, and uh, Stuart gets a special mention in the front. Yeah, of, no, uh, I appreciate difficult. that. No, no not at all. You know, I couldn't have, uh, and of course, um, that kind of brings us nicely on to the small terrestrial mammal stuff um, and yeah so it's a total coincidence but uh, we got this paper out last week was it, the week before last and yeah. you know yeah. you're an amazing lead author uh, with at least one uh, pretty decent co-author there and, <laughs> and, and, and myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> But uh, this, this is stuff that, um, again, we were working on totally independently. And we didn't really share our experiences on this stuff until fairly recently. And and while I remember the first time when I recorded some of the small terrestrial mammals that recorded for the book, and seeing the spectrograms and listening to the sounds uh, slowed down. And I just remember just sitting there shaking my head and thinking, oh no, life has now just got a lot more confusing for bat workers. (laughs) Now, you were coming from it from a slightly different perspective. And do you want to talk a little bit about what you've been doing on these and the massive amount of work you must have done? uh, Well, I know you did in order to end up with stuff like what was described in this paper yeah i think um i think in in some ways it's a bit like the the bush cricket
1: situation you put out a bat detector and you you can record a load of other stuff bush crickets are really obvious so uh if you're well for some bat workers unlucky and you get uh put a detector out where there's you're very close to bu- a speckled bush cricket or dark bush cricket, you can get more bush cricket recordings in a night. Um, however, when looking at bat recordings, I was quite often seeing small mammal recordings in there, um, which I didn't really know what they were. Some I suspected were shrews, some I um, I kind of knew were brown rats because we, we kept chicken, keep chickens and uh, feeding birds and uh, brown rats are pretty obvious, so I knew some were some were brown rats. And again, it was um, we really need to we need to try and crack this to identify them. Uh, otherwise we're collecting potentially vast volumes of data, particularly if you think about all the bat workers in the country are putting out static detectors and the volume of data for very common things which are quite poorly monitored like brown rat and common true but also some of these things that are more localised, like harvest mice potentially, Um, all this information is just perhaps unknowingly being recorded and almost certainly being discarded. Um, I felt that um, this really needed to be looked at.
0: And and not only discarded, I mean, in some instances, uh, misidentified, misidentified. Yeah, Um, Yeah. I I think as you say in your book, there's some some species
1: in particular, things like brown rats. Uh, I think there's certain species, even if you are interested in small mammals in the slightest, just knowing what things like brown rats sound like as a potential confusion species for uh, noctual lyslers. Yeah. Um, there's some situations like that, just understanding what they look like, because it, it does make you think how many how many bat workers would very quickly look through a recording and think, ah, oh, it's another Yeah. Um, and I know myself if you've got uh, brown rats in a location you can get a lot quite a lot of recordings in a night Uh, it's not one or two recordings you can get quite a lot that could be quite important so this was really and it was really I kind of knew that you'd started to work on the book and collecting recordings and to me that was an amazing opportunity you've already already done a huge amount of work and in collecting collecting a load of recordings for different species and I just wanted to try and kind of build on that, fill in some of the gaps. Um, and and Huma, who's also a co-author on this, um, she got really excited, because she, she does a lot of work on small mammals, got very excited about the possibility of recording them. So she's been really good collecting recordings from a load a load of species. Yeah. Um, so a combination of captive individuals, so places like the British Wildlife Centre that you've worked at, yes. but uh, several others but also uh, catching individuals myself of different things so li- living out here in kind of uh, remote Norfolk I could I can walk out just deploy some longworth traps there's most species that I get in Norfolk within like a minute or two of where I live so yeah. I can catch things like um, like bank voles and um, we've got a bit of a yellow neck mouse problem in the house so I could I could uh, catch yellow net mice in one room, and, and is that, is that um,
0: because some escaped from one of your enclosures, or uh,
1: no? Okay. <laughs> uh, they've, been, they've been in here for years. And, okay. uh, we've had situations. My wife was going upstairs once, and there were just three three young yellow net mice sitting on the stair stairs, was looking right. at her. So we caught those. This is before I started. I realised what sort of enclosure you need. I got a very we had a very cheap like hamster cage that we put them in.
0: Yeah. And I don't know well, what you've got to say because we had a conversation about this, but go for it, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, they'd they chewed their way out in just about a day. So they escaped again into the house. They were they're in the house already, so they just kind like, of got out again. But I think over that year I caught about 60 individuals of yellow net mice. Wow. And I well obviously I don't want them in the house. I was moving them a short short distance they're probably just coming straight back i think i've recorded a good bulk of the norfolk the species recorded in norfolk in in my house now so everything from pygmy shrews you're sitting in the lounge and you have a like a pygmy
0: shoe walk across the floor (laughs) (laughs) sounds amazing sounds amazing yeah because i remember we we were talking when when i was working on the book and there was a few times that we uh we spoke and we certainly exchanged emails a few times about the, the small mammals. And I remember saying to you that uh, I had this uh, hamster cage from pets okay. at home or whatever. And uh, and then you told me the story about the yellow-necked mice uh, chewing yeah. through the, the plastic. And I'd and I just spent like the previous month convincing my wife that it was all going to be all right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah, okay, but I moved that out into the shed then, you know. <laughs> but but thankfully, I never, never had anything long enough to to cause that damage. And and you already mentioned the British Wildlife uh, Centre, you know, down that way. That that for me was uh, a saving grace because as soon as I got access to that place, uh, which I got, I think I was there for almost a week, and I yeah. had. I think I had five or six bat logger bat detectors and then every night a different bat logger was set up in a different enclosure and then I would collect the bat loggers the following morning and then I would look at the calls in the hotel room during the day before I went back at night to put them out again and yeah, and it was that hotel room not far from Gatwick that yeah, that's where I saw my first ultrasonic harvest mice and yellow neck mice and Yeah. And I just remember just sitting there, just shaking my head, going, oh, no, 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 I wasn't expecting half of the stuff I was, I don't know what I was expecting.
1: uh, Okay.
0: But yeah, I certainly wasn't expecting it to sound and look like what it did.
1: Yeah.
0: Quite a number of circumstances. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think the biggest, biggest surprise for me were Common and Pygmy True. which I think are amazing, amazing calls. And then um, I was, a friend of mine was getting recordings from Ireland where there's only supposed to be uh, pygmy shrew present and, but they weren't pygmy shrew recordings. And uh, I didn't I didn't know this at the time, but um, there's greater white two shrew, which has been introduced and is spreading in range. So um, I collected, so got my friend to put out detectors more. We got a lot more recordings like this. And I got him to look out, he said, oh, I quite often see shrews just wandering around. Um, and I got him to look out and he found a couple, couple of dead ones, one in quite good condition, which was greater white two shrew. Okay. Um, but it was really uh, satisfying to be able to think it's great white two shrew from its call cool before knowing it was there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I think that for me has been one of the more exciting things that's happened uh, after the book. Because when when, yeah. when we spoke, I remember speaking at one point and and I was struggling to I was struggling to really get my head around how to tell commons from pygmies. And at that point, I hadn't knowingly recorded water Shrew. Yeah. So in this, that a bad book. I, we didn't go heavily into the shoes and that. But uh, but this this paper that's been produced, um, you know, you, you, you accumulated so many well uh, loads of calls of each of these species, and 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 I think I think we can be pretty happy that we've got a reasonably good steer how to tell them apart now. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. I think there's difficult situations and. Yeah. Um, Definitely, some of these species that we looked at in this paper, yeah. I, I haven't. I don't know. We, I don't feel we, we've really got good criteria. Things like brown and black rat.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. But having having said that, since since this has come out, um, I've got more recordings. Uh, humans collected more recordings of brown rat, and there seems to be some vocalizations which I've, I'm not getting. I've got some thousands of recordings now of brown rat. I'm not seeing in brown rat. So I think there's some situations where we we may be kind of more confident, but I yeah, there are some that are really difficult. Yeah. Um, I imagine it's a bit like bats going back uh, maybe 10, 15 years and having our knowledge then uh, compared to what it is now. And I imagine for small mammals, it will continue to develop. And
0: Yeah, well, well, again, I know for you've got a lot more examples of uh, the calls for many of these species than I had, But... But I know from, uh, from my perspective, I mean, I, I, was maybe, I was maybe doing one species, maybe getting 10 hours worth of recordings and maybe with one or two specific colonies. Yeah. To then think that is going to be the entire repertoire for that species, that would be a ridiculous thing to think because. Yeah. And, and then you're gonna have the potential for uh, local dialects You've got the potential for all the different social interactions that could potentially occur yeah. within, you know, all this kind of stuff. Yeah,
1: I really like this challenge. I see it's a bit like uh, it's a bit like a difficult jigsaw where each of the pieces of the puzzle are different recordings, like different different calls with different uh, like durations and frequency. Um, unlike a jigsaw, you don't know what the picture looks like from the beginning, yeah. Yeah, so like yeah. If you've got very few pieces, you you're probably have got a really poor idea. The more pieces you get, um, you start to fill in more of these gaps. but And you get to a point where you think, okay, I, I, I think I understand these pieces. And then you get a load of more calls that uh, outside the range that you've ever seen before. So yeah. I'm still finding this for for things like, as, as we're getting like additional brown rap recordings, finding different examples you i never knew i never knew brown rat could do could do that
0: yeah uh um, the thing is how, how many people are there that's actually out there looking at this stuff the, the way you know
1: i think it's us three maybe <laughs>
0: yeah I, I think i think i know one more person one other person yeah. that uh, goes out of who i won't mention here because i don't have permission to mention the name but i can think of one more person who I can think of that actively seeks to record yeah. small terrestrial mammals because she's a carer, okay, and she looks after different okay. species and she happens to be a bat worker and she throws yeah. her bat detector in the cage or whatever. Um, yeah. But apart from that, uh, so we'd be, we'd be pretty much up ourselves, wouldn't we? if we thought yeah. between the four of us we knew everything that there was to know <laughs> that, that would just be ridiculous yeah <laughs> yeah
1: I think, I think there's been um so there are, are the individuals who've focused on particular species so yeah. they work on things like edible dormice that have been That's fear yes uh oh no I'm getting confused hazel dormice hazel
0: dormice yes yeah
1: yeah um but I think I think historically as, as in your book a lot a lot of it focused on house mice, brown rat, a lot of the behavioral work looking at understanding the reasons for calls. So that's the other thing kind of understanding what the what the calls yeah. that we collected we've got no idea really have we
0: yeah. and, of- and a lot of that and a lot of that rat and mouse work was done to try and help understand uh, how these animals were reacting in laboratory conditions, for example, because they were being experimented on and stuff like that. So so I seem to recall when I was looking at a lot of the research papers for those two species, um, it seemed to be captive animals in the context of lab work quite often seemed to be the driving force behind what the study was. yeah, very interesting stuff. And, uh, and this is your, your your enclosures look much nicer than mine. Okay. see. <laughs> <So, laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't dare put up a picture of mine, to be honest. Uh, okay. and, and, yeah, uh,
1: yeah I I think these are the only enclosures that I'd I'd use for a lot of these because they'd be out of it.
0: Otherwise, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And and did particularly-
0: you find? Did you find? What I found was as soon as you put. Even just a small microphone through the roof of there, yeah. they would. Well, and I remember this with the the harvest mice and the wood mice in particular. You know, yeah. you know, this is down in the BWC centre that would have maybe an enclosure that was maybe four times bigger than this, and you'd put the microphone through the roof so yeah. that the animals couldn't get to the microphone and chew it. Okay. And as, and as soon as you did that. They were out, they were looking, they wanted to know what it was, they were investigating yeah. it. Did, did you find that much with your stuff? Um,
1: I didn't. I think because I had the I had the microphones outside, but ah, okay. it is quite okay. an interesting question. If you get if you're perhaps more likely to get small mammal recordings because they're exploring whatever novel thing you put in their environment, yeah, um, yeah it's quite it could be quite an interesting study look,
0: looking at that, couldn't there? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I just, I just remember a few times just watching what would happen in the enclosure after I'd walked away. Primarily because I was using other people's equipment, and okay. I was wanting to make absolutely certain that when I came back <laughs> in the morning, yeah, that I hadn't lost a hundred and fifty quid microphone or whatever. So there was a few times I kind of stepped back in the darkness and I thought, right, what are these? What are these creatures? Okay. And they'd be up on their hind legs trying to trying to reach yeah. the microphone and stuff you know <laughs> particularly yellow neck mice they can leap they can leap so far
1: so yeah. they can leap from the ground up and just grab onto the the bars they can wow okay yeah. i didn't know that yeah I, wow. I, I can see i can see how they can i've in my roof how, how easily they could climb anything to yeah. get into the house wow. um but i think there's a lot of unknown still in relation to how how best to record small mammals. So my interest obviously is bats first, but if you're putting a microphone up high, I don't think that's necessarily the optimum way of recording small mammals. Hmm. Uh, so there's kind of, I think there's some quite interesting questions. So I know Hume has been putting out detectors. Uh, so our co-author on this piece, been putting out detectors to record small mammals in, in the wild while leaving them out. And she's getting more small marrow recordings by by positioning the microphone closer to the ground. Yeah. So I think there's a bit of work estimating distances for different things. So I think shrews really loud, really loud calls. Oh yeah, I was totally
0: astonished about that. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: Um, but for other species that are quite quite quieter, their calls like harvest mice. Um, I think the next step is working out what how far are we detecting things. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, no. fascinating stuff. And we, we could we could talk about this for hours. <laughs> but let, 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 let's move on to something else because uh, um so get get me totally off, get me totally off subject and let's talk okay. about classifiers and the BTO acoustic pipeline. So uh tell us okay. a little bit well, I would imagine that most people that are going to be listening to this certainly in December 2020. Probably haven't heard much about this yet. Uh, no. Do you want to talk about it a little bit? So, I think um, one of the challenges for our,
1: our acoustic projects have been running are dealing with the volume of recordings. And um, I guess about maybe eight years ago, I started working with Eve Barr uh, building classifiers for bush crickets. But as I was doing that, I I realised that I could I could build uh, like having that experience of building classifiers. I could build them for bats and try try to kind of extend it from there to include a load of species. So I've been been building classifiers for quite a while, but they've mainly been used for our own projects. Um, there's a few exceptions. So don't know if you know about the Devon Great Horseshoe Bat Project.
0: I've heard of it, but I don't know much about it. No.
1: Um, so they've been using our classifiers for some years. There's a few BCT projects. So um, they've got a whales, uh, Bats in Wales project that have been using our classifiers for some years. Uh, bats in Churches use our classifiers. Um, so there's a, f- a few, few projects, but it's mainly been our own. Um, and... Um, what we've wanted to do is try and make this more accessible, but there's a few a few challenges to this. We're because I'm constantly working on classifiers and improving them and adding in new species. What I was finding is they quite often go out of date. So I built a classifier for, um, let's say, um, the bats bat surveys in Wales for BCT, um, and then um, a couple of weeks later, because I'm constantly working on classifiers, so they'll they'll be a bit better for some species, and it's yeah. really difficult to push out updates. Um, so what this pipeline does, and the other thing is uh, for our projects, we i have been getting back the SD cards. So people have been recording them sending them back and that's really inefficient. Um, so it takes time for people to send them back, get them back to you. It takes time for us to download the data, as you know, kind of dealing with a lot of data and moving it around is quite, quite time consuming. So what we wanted was a, a system where we could just put the recording somewhere and then process and do a first analysis and using some of the tools that we've been using. So I think like everyone, I found um, some of the classifiers that are available to use have been a bit frustrating. And um, with this, I've only got myself to blame. If there's if there's problems for a particular species, I know I, I just need to work a bit harder and try and try and, kind of improve this, yeah.
0: um,
1: what this pipeline will do is make it accessible to anyone. So uh, anyone externally can upload recordings. Um, it will put them to the cloud. They'll then be pushed through our classifiers and the results will be returned. Um, there's a few things different. So obviously uh, my interest is broader than bats alone. So if other stuff is recorded like bush crickets or small mammals, it will return those results. Um, In the longer term, we're hoping to extend it to to birds more widely and to nocturnal bird migration so people can upload, like birders can upload a recording and it'll tell them, uh, I don't know, when the red wings were flying over. Um, I think the other things, it focuses on social calls. So social calls were another area that really interests me. Um, It focuses on multiple species in a recording. Um, it, and, um, I think there's other things like, um, the interpretation. So if you upload a recording from Belgium, for example, it yeah. will push it through a classifier that includes the sweetest pieces you've got in Belgium. If you upload it for Scotland, um, the identification is a bit easier than say in uh, Southern England where you've got much broader, sweeter species and more cryptic yeah. pieces. Um, So it's really a way of making it accessible. Um, The other thing to say is um, kind of processing stuff in the cloud is quite expensive. Um, So what we decided to do is uh, we're making a a certain kind of reasonable use free for anyone to use up to a certain limit. So what we'd really like to do is encourage um, like hobbyists and back groups to, to use this system um, but above that limit, there'll be a, a cost, but it'll be cheaper, um, kind of more subsidized if you're willing to make the recordings and results um, available for us to use to, to be part of a bigger data set. Okay. Yes, so uh-huh. if, you, if you've got a commercial product um, project, you could decide um, everything has to remain confidential and then obviously noth- nothing would be used. Um I think the, the other thing to mention is you can set up projects. So if you've got um, a local back group or if you've got a, um, a commercial project, you can have people, different field workers, uploading recordings to that project. Okay. And as an administrator, you can see everything that's being uploaded and the results as they're being processed. Um, you can decide whether to store all the recordings in the cloud if you want to do later auditing. Uh, at the moment, it's you store them all or you don't, but we're, we're making that more flexible um, so that people can decide, I want everything that's not a, a PIP or various decisions you could decide and what's stored and then recovered. Um, so I think I've worked at the BTO, I guess, almost 20 years. For me and my kind of interest in this whole kind of sound area, sound identification area, this is one of the more exciting things because it makes... Um, some of the work that I've been involved with more accessible for other people.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, broadly speaking, and just to recap, uh, anybody could use this dependent upon how much data they're going to put through the pipeline or what level of confidentiality is required with the data that they're going to process through the pipeline. Those things will dictate how much it would cost or not cost somebody or an organization to use it yes is that broadly speaking what, yeah, yeah yeah that's pretty much it
1: but yeah i kind of hope it'll be a useful call a uh, useful tool that will will be will well one improve on better people's experience of classifiers and bad identification but also include i what i think is really interesting and quite important some of these other species groups as well yeah yeah,
0: and I should say, you know, it, it will get better. Because I would imagine, look, I've never built a classifier in my life. Okay, so I've, I'm I'm one of the people that uses them, and then I probably used to moan about them a lot before I then understood the process a little bit better, and then I began to, I began to kind of come to the conclusion, and what I'm about to say is not entirely accurate, but go with the spirit of what I'm going to say here, Stuart. I don't really think there's such a thing as a bad classifier. I don't think that occurs as often as, as what a fuel is the situation is. I think sometimes the people that use the classifiers uh, expect the classifiers to be perfect all of the time with everything they put through them, and they don't they don't appreciate. <laughs> why it is difficult especially if you're dealing with natural sound to actually build something that's going to be perfect With <laughs> any thoughts yeah. on that yeah i think i think the big thing is bats
1: really do quite a few unexpected things so one thing is um like in building a classifier it's really important to try and get as representative cool library as possible and this is a real real challenge yeah um and there were kind of out, outliers to this. You do get odd recordings. Um, it, it is a is a kind of real challenge, and there's overlap between species. So I spent a long time working with um, people in Belgium on uh, trying to improve on the identification of calls and Nathusius Pipstrel. And we've got okay. yeah. many, many, many thousands of recordings of known known recordings of each species that are being kind of looking at and I feel we've got further. Uh, we've got something useful now but there's still uh, about 5% of recordings where it, it'll get it wrong and whatever I do to try and add in new recordings, uh, try different approaches, I'm not getting any further. So I don't know I think there's kind of real. There are there are these real challenges, and I think I think another important consideration is um, how you're going to how you're going to use the data at the end. I think people um, quite often get very very hung up on it. what is this individual recording? Yeah, is it that species? And uh, in a lot of situations, depending on how you're using the data, if you could produce a measure of uncertainty, uncertainty in species identification. That is robust, so really reflects the real error in species identification. You can then control for that in a lot of the analysis that you're doing, be it building population trends, um, looking at habitat relationships. And I think this is really the way the way forward. How do we, first of all, calculate an area uh, estimate of error in species identification that's robust? Um, I think one one issue with um, a lot of the the other the other attempts to to look at species classification, you do get an error, like a measure of error, um, but in most of the cases, that just tells you how similar your unknown recording is to the reference library. So the recordings that they've got in the reference library, not not the not a represent not necessarily a representative call library. So what you can end up with, if I built a classifier for noctule, I only noctual every recording i give it it would say 100 probability of noctual
0: yeah because that's I all think, that's the only place i can put it yeah
1: yeah yeah so i think um what i've tried to do with my classifiers is try and produce a more independent estimate of error and by doing that i can then um if i'm doing analysis i can account for that error so if there's low low probability of being a species that'll contribute less to my the analysis I'm doing. I think finding cleverer ways to deal with this type of data um, and rather than necessarily getting really hung up on every single recording. Yeah,
0: yeah, and I also think a big part of it is is managing the user's expectations and explaining to the user what the classifier is doing. And, yeah. and if the classifier is seeing in the user's head, okay, so this isn't necessarily the way that you would describe it, but the, the user sees, you know, I don't know, natter as bat 90%, yeah, or 0.9 or whatever the measure is. And then the user then goes, oh, well, that's going to be a natter as bat then. And yeah. you go, well, no, not, yeah. not necessarily. <laughs> it's I think it's just it's managing the expectation yeah. and and taking all of this data and it's how you describe the result, isn't it? You know, whereas, yeah, yeah, it, I,
1: I, I, yeah, I know with a lot of classifiers, the the values are species specific. So for one species, a value of zero point nine is Perhaps not very good and yeah. for others it's like definitely that species yeah yeah so <laughs> I think I think like working on classifiers has been really interesting because I kind of I feel I've got an understanding of how people could make mistakes and yeah. I think it's open to that at the same time I think I do feel there's a bit of a lost opportunity in how a lot of people are using well sound identification in general I feel, I feel sound identification for some groups like myotis have really improved a lot in the past five to 10 years. Yet, a lot of people will only say it's a myotis species. I guess it depends on how, whether it's important. But um, I, I, at the same time, I do I do find that a bit bit frustrating. Yeah. And from a conservation point of view, not being able to, to say it's a myotis species, that's not that's not helpful
0: really yeah. i'm probably one of those people as you know <laughs> see, see i i would rather say it was a myotis and be yeah if i don't
1: if, know yeah.
0: yeah if i don't know yeah and be a hundred percent correct that sure. it's a myotis than uh, say it's a naturas. if i'm only 99 percent well maybe that's a bit extreme but if i'm only 90 percent certain it's a naturalist
1: yeah
0: it, again, it would depend on the job, but I would rather call it a myotis. If I was ninety percent certain it was a natteras, I would call okay. it a myotis. You know, but okay. but it would depend. It would depend on the job. It would depend on the,
1: you
0: yeah. know, you know, if you had ten thousand calls, yeah. and every one of them was ninety percent uh, natteras. Yeah. you know you'd be saying to yourself okay look it's pretty darn obvious you've got Natteras back here you know? <laughs> but it's yeah. different context yeah. isn't it
1: yeah I guess that's the other thing what what you're really interested in so are you are you interested in having an inventory what species are the present there if yeah. that's if that's your aim it's far simpler because you could just look at the best quality recordings and once you've found it there then um, you haven't got to look through all the rest But if you're interested in quantifying bat activity, then that's a different question again, because you want to look through as many recordings as possible. So yeah, it really depends. And if you're, I really feel if you're doing analysis with the data, you can control, you can, so I've written a paper with Eve Barn, a guy who's in um, Paris on producing a more kind of impartial measure of error in species identification, which I really think everyone should be using uh, although I'm, I'm quite biased, of course. But, um, I feel there's ways of getting a better measure of uncertainty. and with that, you can then include that in analysis so that where there's lower probability for a, a recording, it contributes less to what you're interested in. You could also test, does it actually make a difference to what I'm interested in? Does it change your trends? Does it change your habitat relationships? If it doesn't, you say, okay, there is this level of uncertainty, but it makes no difference to what I'm interested in. And you can prove that. So it's kind of a different philosophy of dealing with these kind of big data sets that I'd really like to see in the future. Yeah,
0: yeah, and I, I totally, I totally buy into that, I totally buy into that. I say to people all of the time, uh, you know, there's probably not a webinar goes by, and there's a training session goes by when I say to people, what's the job, okay, and, that, and that's just something I've yeah. said for a long time, and, and I think that's what you're saying there in, dependent upon what the job is and what it is you're trying to demonstrate. Mm -hmm. And the effectiveness of going through tens of thousands of calls individually, manually, compared to putting them through a classifier. And and the thing I'll also say quite a lot is you you could give that thousand calls, for argument's sake, to the best acoustic ID person Mm -hmm. in Europe Hmm. and they will make mistakes because they only know what they know as an individual human being so so as much as yeah. people can turn around and say they don't like classifiers for whatever reason yeah uh, let's not forget that uh, quite often humans aren't that great at doing this either <laughs> it's yeah you know it's it's
1: i i really yeah. like looking manually looking at recordings i really enjoy enjoy doing that um but I've also, if I want a second of opinion, second of opinion, I can, I can put them, I can put the through the classifier anything I'm not sure about, yeah. and it'll tell me statistically what's the, what's the closest.
0: Yeah. And opinion. you know, sometimes you do that, and the classifier throws up something, yeah. where your head just wasn't at. You know, you, you, yeah. you know, you're, you're seeing something, you're looking at something, and you're pretty certain you think you know what it is and then you put it through a classifier and it throws up something from left field and you go oh my word I wasn't actually thinking about that and it gives you a different perspective sometimes yeah Uh, yeah Yeah. I think I think
1: in the new year what I'd really like is is for people to give give the give the pipeline a chance give it a go with some some recordings and uh get a feel for how it compares with Whatever option, if they're using another classifier, um, it's not really for me to say it's better or I I think it's really up to up to people to because obviously I I think it's I think it's good and will help people. Um, I think it's really up to people to to kind of test this out and kind of not just put in good recordings, but look at the range of things that you might get. What happens if you put it in pip social calls? Are they are they identified as pip social calls or
0: um or as some classifiers do they would identify them as nictalists for argument's sake
1: yeah just kind of um looking at the range of calls you normally get yeah yeah
0: yeah. that's fascinating stuff and i'm quite sure eh, once this goes live properly i would imagine it's going to be on social media etc etc telling telling the world about it yeah or is it going to be a, a soft launch or uh, a big loud launch what do you think yeah i don't know at the moment i
1: think um i've got a number of projects that are going on next year so i've got a project in the thumberland one in north yorkshire uh starting a new survey in guernsey volunteer survey uh i've got project work in, in ukraine and belarus um so i've got these projects already that are going to be using it okay. um yeah. and I'm, I'm not in a kind of rush to get it out but i think i think it may maybe be a soft launch just get some people using yeah. it and yeah. um yeah may, maybe not a thousand like thousands of people on the first day just in case yeah. it all yeah. goes horribly wrong but hopefully hopefully not
0: good good so that brings us nicely to uh well what, what's next i mean I, i've i've put up some random pictures here not really knowing too much about what you're going to see here but i know you've done a little bit on bumblebees i know because you very kindly shared with me uh, some moth ultrasound which i was just absolutely fascinated by and of course we've got the small terrestrial mammals um yeah you so, all what do you think obviously classifiers this could be a massive part of your life going forward yeah
1: yeah um, it's it's a it's a fun it's a fun part um as i say i think if if someone was um willing to just fund me just to work on this stuff i'd i'd do it but Sadly, I don't. I don't think that'll happen. I'm sorry. Uh, I don't. I don't, have, I don't have deep enough pockets for you, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I think um, I did. I did spend um, a year just collecting bumblebee recordings, and I, there is there are quite a, quite a lot of differences between species in terms of the, the frequency of buzzing. There's differences between like the cast. So queens, bigger bigger bees tend to be lower frequency buzzing. Um, but after a year of doing that, I was starting to get my ear in. So I was hearing a bee before I'd see it. And I'd think, oh, that's a whatever species. Wow. So I kind yeah. of feel, I feel there's potential there. Um, it'd be nicer to get further with some of the moths, just to get an understanding of what species are really producing high frequency sounds. Um, like um, your, your book covers a couple of species doesn't it green silk is it green silver lines and yes
0: yeah that was the main one i think it was yeah yeah
1: um yeah it'd be nice just um not a priority but it'd be nice to get a bit further um i think one of the big areas is just continuing to work on the the back classifiers and i think part of this is uh, a kind of challenge for me to improve my understanding particularly of some of the the southern and easterly distributed, distributed species in Europe. Um, so that's kind of more of an interest, but I'd be, I'm really keen to try and build classifiers more widely for other kind of European countries. Um, also really keen to try and get a bit further with the sound identification of other species in, in of small mammal in Europe. Yeah. Um, I, I did look at, I think we've got another 80 species that we, we would need to look at in Europe. So uh, how, how many, how many have we looked at between us in, in that paper it was 13, wasn't it? Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> so that, I think that would be, it would be nice to get a bit further anyway. Yeah. Um, but I think to do that, it's, we'd need, we need to build some really good collaborations with, a lot of other countries who are willing to work with
0: us. Oh, I'm very nervous when you said we were. Well, I'd
1: like it. Uh, you're not planning a, is that a bad
0: kind of European guide next? Oh, well, I wasn't. Uh, not, not up until about 30 seconds ago and I was thinking. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, yeah, but you've got, a, you've got a lot of people that... Uh, know help you with this stuff don't you it's
1: yeah and I think I think a lot of this is like people like yourself and humor and I think also at the BTO there's some really clever people who um I think whenever I can't do something or don't have expertise in something there's always someone there who's just really good uh it's quite a quite a good organization and um also some of the, the people worked with in france and yeah really really good very inthi- very enthusiastic people people who are very clever i'd recommend everyone working with clever people so it's a good <laughs> idea because you always produce some nice outputs
0: <laughs> that, that, that rules me out then yeah. <laughs> no
1: no no not at all no
0: <laughs> but uh, no I mean I, I mean I i find i, I find the small terrestrial mammals uh, yeah f- fascinating and I just I think it's just because I still have this feeling of shock that I had that week in Gatwick where I was looking at some of these things for the first time and I'm thinking yeah. I phoned up Keith French uh one of my friends who I think I think you've met Keith um he's one of the co-authors of the social course but and, and I said to him, oh, you won't believe what these harvest may sound like. And, and he just said, everybody's going to hate you. Everybody's going to hate you because it just looks like pipistrelle echolocation. And I go, yeah, it's unfortunate. <laughs> it's very unfortunate to do that, isn't it? Yeah. I know I've got a PhD student who's just
1: started, uh, Jennifer McIsaac, working okay. on, you'll be working on sound idea of small mammals. Well, that, okay. that's what she's particularly keen on. Um, but the projects in Belarus and Ukraine. So I've already got a project out there. Wow. Um, but we've had two years of data anyway. We're trying to survey an area called Polisia, which is 100,000 square miles. So a massive area wilderness. And I'm really keen to try and get really good baseline data for bats and other stuff. Um, uh, Cause there's a lot of potential for um designating new protected areas Um, but we're already getting i've got some millions of recordings back from field workers putting out detects already and there's a lot of small mammal recordings in there so i built classifiers for ukraine and belarus using including the bat species and at the moment it just assigns the small mammal recordings to the closest species Okay. So within that, I can see shrew recordings, but they're not common and pygmy shrew or water shrew. Okay. There's dormice recordings, I think, um, but I, they're not, I don't think they're haze of do, dormice. They're something else. Yeah. Um, there's definitely harvest mice recordings in there because they're quite distinctives, you know. Yeah. Um, so,
0: yeah. Yeah, So.
1: Eat to crack
0: that. So you're going to be quite busy for the next uh, couple of months then, <laughs> the rest, for the rest of your life. <laughs> should
1: keep busy for a while,
0: yeah. Yeah. Oh uh, goodness. Look, Stuart, we're going to have to bring things to a close, um, because uh, that, that, look, I, I could talk to you all day and all week, uh, because obviously um, we, we both have very similar interests um but it's been absolutely fascinating and i hope that anybody listening to this finds it equally uh, fascinating yeah and if you want to say anything else i should talk about before before we say goodbye Stuart, i think so i think i think we've probably covered probably more than we should <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's, you know uh, no, good good to have a chat it's it has good. been yeah. it has yeah. been yeah. hope you enjoyed this talking bat interview which is an edited audio only version of the original video session the full version including video is available via Battability club our online training platform to find out more about club go to battability.co.uk. till next time thank you